Today's story includes depictions of slavery, sexual assault, and violence against children. Story by Mary Hope Whitehead Lee Read by Mia Ellis Nursing Without a body, it seemed Nursing Nursing I looked down at the head Without a body, it seemed Face, mouth, lips that suckle at one of my always seem to be too sore nipple, and I wants to take this new, new baby head tween my labor-large, rough-working hands and crush this little fleshy, fat skull into nothingness. Nothingness. Can't love this child, don't care for this child, don't want to. Ain't no one have the power to change the way I feels. The power felt exactly the same way at the age of nine when I was made to look after children's and babies of peoples that works my mama. Work, my mama, work. At the age of nine. She would never, not never have wished this work on me, just like she never wished to be taken whenever they please, by husbands and brothers, relations and neighbors, Friends, they say, of the women's and men's she labors under. Labor. She labor. Hate minding other people's children's. And I've been all the way all the time uncaring. Like this time when that girl child, Anne, got herself all caught up in some tree that didn't want her up in itself no way. And she cry out to me for help. I just sits here. And she's screaming and all, starts to getting on my nerves, so I walks up under that tree and tell her, jump, 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 I say, I'm a catcher, I say. She believed me, and she come tumbling down out of that tree, too, not feet first, but head first, head first. I step aside, tell Annie's, her name Ann, too, mother, that her girl baby fall, hit ground for I can reach her. Step aside. Remember, too, the boy baby son of one of them peoples used to works my mama. Hate to change it dirty cloths. Hate the sight of the thing in the crotch of it legs. Want to pull it off it body just the same way I wants to pull the same thing off of them bodies of all them men's that takes my mama, makes my mama do what I knows she hate. I know. She hate that I got no place else to sleep but in the same room in the same bed with her shame. That she can't send me outside while they uses her cause she can't always send me to Lena. And mom afraid somebody walking by in the night might take me too. Hate that she might have to use them herbs again, make her so sick cause she need them to root out the thing them men's leave in her body sometime. She hate the taken, hate the way they looks at me too like they do when they done finish. Somehow, some way they know, they know she would kill. She would. So they just looks, like they do. I know these things cause I hear mama say them, all these things and more, to Lena. 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 Mama woman friend she give her heart to whenever. 
every time she can. Every time. I seize them together. And what passed between them be the thing I want. I done always want, still be wanting for myself, for me. Since the first time I done seen it were possible. It be possible. They touch, they whisper, they laugh, they cry out loud, they spill forth they soul into each other eye, and they ain't never seems to fill each other up. Bees a sweet need they has for each other. A sweet need I needs for me. A sweet need. Ain't no sweet need, this suckling thing at my breast, this child did mother too busy to nurse, forcing on me the thing she find unladylike. She say beneath her, she say not knowing, I know she say it. Don't want this woman leavings. Not the leavings of nobody who say I must do. Gotta do they work cause it demean them. Have to do it, they say. Demeaning. So it be too, too easy for me to see just how soft be this brand new baby skull. How it got a soft spot like a hole in the roof of it head that hold it child brain. Oh, I was pregnant once. I was once, and I hate it. Being pregnant, the thing growing inside me, a hungry thing eating out my soul, making me sick except when I be sound asleep taking my life for its own use. Can't keep it. No, not and keep me too. No. Mama, Lena both is gone from me now, so I carries it to term. Smother it. Tell anybody who asks, it's stillborn. Nobody seemed to care much. Bury it under the stoop of this old shack. So I have milk now. Is how I come to wet nursing. Bees my prison. No more. Prison no more. This snuffling small bundle of white babiness seemed about satisfied. Drift off into sleep now, not knowing this at last feeding. Tiny little head began to lolling bout on it neck. So I brings it baby yellow-headed white face tween my two, two painful dark brown breasts and hold it against me till it lungs cease pumping air. Cease. You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a non-profit author-run publisher of innovative fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week, we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard Story by Mary Hope Whitehead Lee from the anthology Chick Lit Post-Feminist Fiction, edited by Chris Mazza and Jeffrey DeShell, and published by FC2 in 1991. Next, Mary Hope is joined by writer and FC2 editorial board member Miriam Krolos for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation.
The first thing I noticed when I read the story, not heard it, was the form. How you as a writer chose to create the text, not using the capitalization, the punctuation that you could have with dialogue or um, just with basic sentence structure. And I, as a writer, also, I do not ever, I do not believe I really ever once have used punctuation or capitalization in the standard way. And I know for myself why I've done it. And it, it was, for me, definitely an issue of belonging. I didn't feel like I belonged to that group of people who knew how to use a quotation mark or a period. I just didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up with books. And I didn't go to schools where we had books sometimes. Like sometimes one or two of us would like not have the history book and were told to share. And sometimes there'd be too much graffiti on a few of them and we were told to share. So when I started as a writer to go ahead and pretend that I needed these um, symbols, that I needed to use things in this way, that had already been prescribed to other writers, it stunted me, it made me feel a lack of belonging to my own work. So I just eliminated it and started using capitalization, punctuation in my own way, every story. I, I think of how to use it for myself. I know that Itazaki uh, Shari was not the first writer to use uh, all lowercase, but she's the first writer who made me sit up and pay attention with using lowercase and minimal punctuation, and in fact, no punctuation most of the time. And when this story was coming into being, uh, because it, it, it follows, it's in the tradition of narratives of enslavement, which had uh, attestations by white people who said that, yeah, this Black person really wrote this thing, and was written in the language of uh, the mid to late 19th century with all kinds of uh, conventions for the form it would take, I started writing the piece in that kind of voice. And um, another voice in my head stopped me cold and said, I don't talk like that. And so I stopped and I got out of the way and I started writing again. And the text came out the way it looks on the page with none of the approved conventions for writing even a narrative of enslavement. Yeah, and the voice is incredibly strong. I mean, Mia did an amazing job reading. But part of why she as a reader could do such an amazing job is because you've done such an amazing job of putting mm -hmm. that voice on the page. So the narrator in the story has three instances where she harms a child. The first being Annie. Annie is harmed when she chooses not to catch her, even though she herself is a child at that point. The second is the child that she um, makes uh, stillborn, like she basically creates her own narrative there, that that child 
is stillborn and everybody believes it. And the third is the one in her arms, the one that she harms in her arms. And so in a way, what we are talking about is a character who is a murderer, who has harmed three children in her life, led to their death, two being babies. And yet, like, in a non-traditional way with the psychology of characterization, she does know a mother's love. Like, she's not unaware of how mother's love works. She has her own mother, but she is not capable of that instinct. And in the few pages that the story exists in this physical space, you create empathy for this voice, for this narrator, despite the fact that the reader could see that having experienced a mother's love, she might herself be able to have the instinct for it, though she doesn't. Now, if there is a question, it would be, how do you do that in a few pages? In, in just pages of writing, how do you create a character who can harm three children and still have the reader's empathy? Well, I'm very pleased that you have empathy for the character. Um, and I don't know that I consciously set out to do that. The story feels like a gift, like a gift from an ancestor, someone who actually lived the story and is finally getting to tell it through someone else. And I remember you, the first time I heard you use the word murder, I sort of bristled at that because I didn't, it didn't seem like the right word. Uh, for the final incident in the story, um, I thought infanticide, but I never thought beyond infanticide. Um, what I think, the person I think I'm writing about, or the person who came to me in the story, is someone who I think has learned, observed, and come to practice dehumanization because she has been dehumanized. And we may be taking too much for granted to think that she knows what a mother's love is. Her mother is definitely fierce. But the character, the narrator doesn't tell us anything about a mother's love. She witnesses another kind of love that she craves, but we really don't know beyond the, the, the very effective protectiveness that her mother yeah. displays in front of others, what else that relationship is. Yeah, other than that, there is the submission that she knew that her mom would kill, her mother would kill the men for touching her, not just looking at her. Yeah, we don't know what level of tenderness or or affection there was there. And the child that she basically makes her own story out of, like where she has this power to um, make the narrative of it having been stillborn and be believed. That child, she says at one point, she could not keep it and could not keep herself 
could not keep it and could not keep me. And what really interested me about that is, despite how the story is obviously, obviously dealing with the issues of race, for it, it, it obviously is historical, there is a way in which that statement um, applies to the female body in many other instances. Instances of poverty, instances of just desire and personality and choice. So were you intending consciously to, um, for a second, just let that connection be about the female body universally? With that line, I could not keep it and keep me. This this story was very magical in many ways because as I was taking dictation, which is what it felt like, it it opened up spaces for me to include personal experiences I've had, and abortion is one of them. And from a very early age, I knew I never really wanted to have children, and um, the one time that I did become pregnant and chose not to carry it to term, I was not in a position to do good by any other human being that came into my life at that point. I knew that I would, I, I would be a single Black mother in the United States, and I couldn't see past the... The only way out seemed not to, to carry the pregnancy to term. So that was, that was my choice. And even the description of, of, of how it feels, how the character says she feels when she's pregnant, that's how I felt. So, so the story itself provided a space for me to include a very personal experience that seemed to ring true with the character as the character was telling me the story. I, I, it really resonated with me as well. And I do feel that it is something very, very simple to say out loud, but if it could just be understood, if people could just understand that that is what sometimes that choice comes down to is keep it or keep yourself. And you're already, you already know yourself. So you choose yourself. Love and mother's love. Another really interesting and perfectly appropriate as a segue since you just mentioned, uh, women like me, also women like you, not having children and possibly could have like made that choice in the past, but just didn't. I'm in my mid-40s and I didn't. And so she speaks about Lena and the mother's relationship in this way where there's such yearning. She really yearns for this love. It is basically, though the word is not used in the story, it is basically love. And she says it is all she wants and she describes it as um, touch whispers, laughter, spilling out and sweet need. And another, another thing that resonated with me was that she could hold 
these babies in her arms, her own and the one she was feeding, and not see that as an avenue for the sweet need. And I thought that was really interesting because I think most women uh, would find it difficult to understand how motherhood could not um, be an avenue of that when you have it right in front of you. Um, but this story makes it, it makes it clear why she couldn't. So if there is a question in that, again, it would be about your consciousness as a writer. Like you create a voice that is holding a child and cannot, is like talking of this sweet need of touch and she's holding a child, but she will not feel it with this child. She cannot feel it with this child. Well, she, how can I put this? Um, I think the narrator sees between her mother, well, it's stated between her mother and Lena, what she wishes she had for herself, subtext being what she wishes, perhaps what she wishes she had from her mother but may not be receiving. And relationships in a system like plantation slavery are so, um, what's a good word for it? They're so out of balance. I don't think it would be unfair to say that the narrator knows lack of agency more than she knows agency. And when she's put in these complex situations where she has some agency, she makes choices that to her um, allow her to continue to survive, to live, to be herself in this very restricted context. And, and if she isn't receiving the kind of emotional support that she needs from her mother, and this has, has nothing to do with whether her mother is a good mother or not, I, th- I think the, the circumstances bring all kinds of, of weirdnesses to emotional relationships in this case. Um, she, she doesn't have the model. She doesn't have the experience. She, she doesn't have that particular kind of empathy and, and, and not all mothers love their children right away. I mean, there's, there's postpartum depression. There's, there's all kinds of reasons why mothers may resent having given birth to a child. I, I do think the question really was about what you said, the balance that there just isn't balance, that she doesn't have the luxury of balance. And I've, you know, I've, um, I've witnessed it, like living in Saudi Arabia, where women uh, have to live a certain way. The lack of balance between what they will feel for their female children and what they will feel for their male children if you discuss it without having witnessed it, it it just doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem possible. But I think in this story, there's such a lack of balance between what she says she wants, like the sweet need that she wants and, and what she can actually like have. And it is like systemic. And like I said, like, um, I think it would be very, very difficult for somebody who's not seen women who are mothers 
treat their children so differently or not want some and want others to believe it. You know, like in, in this country, we do have like a long a history of um, talking about postpartum depression, but in in countries where women really don't have, don't feel they have a choice except motherhood, there are all kinds of other things that come up once you give birth. And, and a lot of it is um, like what seems to be like hatred for female children. What what t- like shapes into the word could be hatred or disdain for a female child versus a male child. Or adapting to a complete um, sense of powerlessness um, with female children, realizing that one really can't take an active role in the development of the child because the culture and the society has already determined what that's going to be. And there's no deviation from that. Yeah. And then, and then too, I mean, this, the stereotypical mammy in the South was expected to take care of the white children um, at the expense of her own children. And um, in the 1920s, the daughters of the Confederacy wanted to build a museum and erect a statue in Washington, D.C., honoring the mammy and her loyalty and her wonderful work, um, as they put it. And the, the statue shows an older Black woman holding a, what appears to be a white child with the woman's Black children at her skirts trying to get her attention. Fortunately, I mean, it even went to Congress. They tried to pass some kind of legislation or something to make this museum and statue come into being. But uh, the NAACP, W.E. Du Bois, and other people of the time were able to stop it. So that statue, the, the child holding onto the skirts of the mammy who's holding the white baby, that's the narrator in the story. And then she grows up to become a wet nurse, but she doesn't have any children because she remembers being that child holding onto her mother's skirt. And so there is the fact that this is history. And as you just mentioned, recent history, unfortunately, right? Like there are still people alive in the South that will repeat the the narrative that um, the slaves were part of the family structure, that they were, you know, and I'm, I was born and raised in Egypt, and in Egypt, a lot of the quote-unquote slavery happens out of poverty, not out of color, and there is that same narrative that these uh, people who basically just have no choice to go anywhere, just can't if they want to eat or survive, uh, that they're family, that they're just like family because you feed them, and you know, like they they basically raise your kids and you feed them and so there is something recent and past history in story but your work now your more recent work uh nuclear waste i was really interested in how 
a lot of those lines in the poems that you've collaged with those images, the images, obviously, but the the lines that were collaged really reminded me of story, not because the narrator's voice was, was similar or you brought up any of the same themes, but there was a very uh, similar emotive quality. So obviously slave narratives, narratives of, you know, like the Holocaust or all these historical fiction pieces, they can't survive and be read if there wasn't a conversation about humanity in them still. It's not just history. We are still talking about who we are now. And with nuclear waste, I felt like the strain of emotion that a reader feels when they go through story, it's still there years later. I believe you wrote story 20 years ago. 30. 30 years ago. There were lines like, the law of this land is that one must eat one's own tongue. Hunger is an epidemic here. Or... Uh, you might as well have used barbed wire when you touched us, Daddy. And reading lines like that, I felt the exact same combination of um, emptiness, sorrow, life, rage that I did reading story. It just, uh, it just really like fascinated me that despite how different the form is story is a short story and nuclear waste is a collage of of everything from you know visual art to lines of poetry it really fascinated me that I could feel the same though um there doesn't seem to be like there's anything similar except how the reader feels. Um, that's a really wonderful compliment. And uh, thank you. Um, while you were, you were talking about your reaction to nuclear waste, I was thinking about our conversation we had about the name Mary and, and Miriam and how one of the translations for Miriam in Hebrew is bitter. And I have a double first name. It's Mary Hope. and and I think when I sent you the link to nuclear waste, I used the phrase bitter hope because that's, that's what I was feeling, what I was doing uh, when I was creating that collection of poems and, and collage. And I think there's a sense of bitter hope in story too, because the story doesn't end with the last word and I'm not sure, sure where it goes. And I, and that's all right. Uh, I think it's it's a more powerful story because it, it ends the way it does. Um, but the 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 idea for nuclear waste came from the the phrase nuclear family, and and I was just was, I was rolling the phrase around in my head and and came up with nuclear families breed nuclear waste, nuclear waste breeds nuclear families, and if you grow up in a family where there's a lot of violence, be it verbal, psychological, sexual or physical, you have to have a certain, it seems to me one would have to have a certain amount of 
hope to move through that to the other side and continue on with the life beyond that. Although that's always, that's always there. And um, I, although there were wonderful things that happened in that family and I have pleasant memories of things like my father playing the piano um, or my father and my mother dancing the Lenny hop in the living room. Uh, <laughs> there, there was this, there was this atmosphere that I lived in that affected me and my two other siblings each in a different way, but we were all violated in some way. Um, and after my father died, I was able to, to finally write about it and, and visualize it through collage. And that, that reinforced my very early decision. Like when I was in you know, elementary school, I was like nine years old, I think I'm not wanting, I didn't want, I wanted the abuse that I experienced and my sibling experience to stop with me. And I'm the only, pro, and, and I'm and the only person I can't make it stop with them or with, with them, but I can make it stop with me. And that was another reason I didn't want to have a family, have a child, because I didn't want to inadvertently let that kind of behavior seep back into my life and perpetrate it on someone else. And I do, I do think very simply, people have had families then and now. You can have everything the government should let you have as a black man, as an Asian woman, as, you know, as a child, you can have anything that society will allow you. But I myself, I don't know if the family structure itself of abuse within families is, and people could argue that, that people could argue, but just having lived in the places I've lived and seen, you know, how I could be, I've spoken to Icelandic women about rape, about how despite like that they haven't seen like a man in power and I don't know how long, at that point when I was having this conversation, like they were still dealing, dealing with being groped in bars and, and their whole cultural narrative was about the, the Nordic woman who, you know, doesn't get messed with because of their history of the women you know, these matriarchal societies that exist when the men have to go off and do their pillaging. And I, we were still sitting there talking about abortions and rape and, and being slapped around. So like some part of me does, um, might not have been articulate, but, you know, I do sometimes think like family, like once you take care of what a government owes its citizens once you take care of how people are aren't supposed to respect each other in the workplace how do you take care of the violence in these very small nuclear structures no and the first quote i wrote the first quote i read from uh, nuclear waste the law of this land you know, to eat one's own tongue out of hunger, that also seemed to me, like from my travels, it just seemed to me like something that I just don't know. The idea of voice, I just don't know how you could convince people 
to have voice when it does, when it does feel better to eat your own tongue out of hunger, you know, when, when to take yourself in that way and go with the flow, so to speak, you know, and let the hunger make you eat your own tongue. It does work better in, in personal conversation, personal relationships than it, than it would to like allow yourself voice. And that, this is again, like, like I'm not, you know, saying this is how the world should be. I just, I've experienced it all over the world, no matter how the government structure here, Saudi Arabia, Iceland, Egypt, wherever, it just is easier to not have a voice. When, when the dynamic is more nuclear, it is easier to eat your own tongue out of hunger than, than, let, it, than let it be your voice. And that's how some people later become writers and artists and musicians and, and uh, amazing creative people. But that, that poem is about the patriarch in the family. And that was sort of, that was the law. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was really, it was really well done. I mean, obviously story is brilliant. The psychology and story, another writer might've needed a novel to uh, fully lay out. I, I also really, really enjoy nuclear waste. If I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but, <laughs> but it did. The combination of having just read story and then reading nuclear waste, as I just mentioned, it did make me wonder about how people are so focused on these big structures, especially in 2021. The structures, you know, like the systemic racism but there's so much of what it is we deny ourselves, the pain that we live through that is nuclear, that is like within this nuclear dynamic, our mothers, our fathers, our brothers. And it's uh, it starts there, I think. Like, I did not have a voice. I did not have a voice in any way whatsoever. I do not remember one time coming home and saying something happened to me and I had all kinds of things happen to me like horrible 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 things like really 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 bad bad things and not once did I open the door and say like anything and that wasn't the American government it, you know I just I can't really say that anything if my family hadn't been Egyptian, if my family hadn't been in America, if we weren't minorities, I really can't say honestly that it was that. But I found, um, just found it really painful to go from story where obviously there are these issues and themes of race and government and, and violation that starts from the very top to nuclear waste where you feel the same way in the end, but the, the themes aren't the same. I guess that's not. <laughs> oh, but 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 you know, the hope is there with the bitterness. Thanks to Mary Hope Lee and Miriam Krolos for joining us this week. 
Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn and engineered by Joelle Thibodeau. The story was read by me, Mia Ellis, and recorded by Cy Marshall at Mosaic Audio. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.